0: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
0: This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Keeper. And uh, today we are talking about uh, a very interesting development um, in as much as the chicken industry is finally, um, shall we say, explaining what is going on behind the closed doors. My guest is Vicki Bond. Vicki is the president of the Humane League, a nonprofit organization that works to end the abuse of animals raised for food. She is also a certified veterinarian and animal welfare scientist who has spent more than a decade advocating for animals. Um, So Vicky, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Um, Why don't we start by telling people what the Humane League is? Because everybody is familiar with the Humane Society,
2: but the Humane League is obviously a different animal, despite the similarity in your missions. That's right. Thank you for having me. Um, Yes, so the Humane League works to end the abuse of animals raised for food. And we do that by getting institutional change. So we ask Companies or campaign for companies to make uh, commitments to improve animal welfare in their supply chain, such as going cage free for eggs and committing to the Better Chicken Commitment, which improves the welfare of, of chickens raised for meat in the supply chain.
0: Great. We're going to talk about that later on in the show. And you're the president. So, um, you know, how deep in the weeds do you get with this stuff? You develop the policies, you try to. You
2: advocate for I mean you talk to company presidents, how do you do your job? Okay, so yeah, I am much more uh, out of the weeds these days. I was in the weeds <laughs> I, I did help right. put together the better chicken commitment uh, criteria that we have um, as I was a veterinarian back in the day and scientist, mm-hmm. so um, but these days i'm managing a team that do that, um, and that team we have um, people that meet with companies like you say CEOs, and I did do that you know I remember going to Paris once and meeting with uh, multiple CEOs of like the hugest some of the hugest retailers in Europe um, and getting them to commit to go cage free so mm-hmm. we have a, an, um, a team of people that work on that that they, they meet with these companies either with directors or CEOs um, those involved in the in the kind of sustainability side of the of, of companies typically and we work with right. them and try to convince them why it's important to care about animal welfare why you know explain to them that people care about animal welfare that they care about animals being kept in cages that that's not acceptable. And some companies will uh, agree and say, yeah, we should change this. Unfortunately, probably the majority decide that they don't think that this is something they should concentrate their efforts on. And so that's when we campaign and we will launch campaigns to to highlight the bad practices these companies continue to do in their supply chains to the public. And we get a lot Mm -hmm. of support from the public because when you ask someone, do you think it's okay to keep, you know, three or four chickens in a tiny wire cage where they can't even open their wings? It's very hard to find a person that says, yes, carry on doing that. No, they don't want want that. It's not acceptable. Um, And so, (laughs) yeah, indeed. Um, and, so, uh, and so, you know, when we launch these campaigns, the companies then take notice because they have to. They know that it's destroying their image and and um and it's revealing what they do um, to animals.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk for a minute. Um, let's kind of set the stage here. <clears throat> there were a couple of lawsuits that were brought by the Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary, which resulted in the first voluntary publications of the Food Safety and Inspection Service uh, inspections of poultry plants in the United States. Um, talk about the settlement that was reached between the uh, Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary and the USDA that guaranteed access to those FSIS records without a Freedom of Information Act request for each and every
2: one. Why is that such a game changer? So um, back in 2019, the USDA and the Food Service, uh, this Food Safety and Inspection Service, which is kind of a branch of the USDA, mm-hmm. they, they, this lawsuit was put against them because they violated the Freedom of Information Act. So the Animal Welfare Institute and Farm Sanctuary. Uh, recognize that they weren't and that the usda and fsis were refusing to disclose key records um, that demonstrate their oversight of federal laws that protect food safety and, and supposedly sort of animal welfare um, and they have been frequently requesting them and they've not been finding them so the uh the, this they they took them to court uh the court uh they tried the usda tried to get the, the case dismissed the court denied wow. that um and so what it meant was they had to settle in uh, last year in 2021 and they agreed they agreed to publish the, um to publish excuse me the inspection reports for the last uh, for 3 years proactively so rather than having to get a freedom of information act which means you have to su- submit all these things to, to ask for to see these records now they have right. to proactively put those records out there for us all to see which is amazing it was incredible work by both um the animal welfare institute and and farm sanctuaries to get that
0: and that means that consumers can go on the FSIS website as part of the USDA and see those records for themselves. They can see which poultry companies are in gross violation of mm-hmm. whatever poultry mm-hmm. standards. But that that leads me to the next issue, which is that poultry has never
1: mm.
0: been included in uh, USDA animal welfare standards the way that cattle, hogs, and sheep are. And... So I wanted you to sort of describe that disconnect. And then also there, is a, there was a later uh, ruling because the original animal welfare standards came out, I think, in the 40s, um, the Poultry Products Inspection Act of 1957. What is that? Does that guarantee any, any uh, humane handling um, issues or is that just about whether or not they're going to be wholesome to eat?
2: Yeah, that's right. It's really about food quality, but what that means that food quality and animal welfare can sit hand in hand in some regards. So, One would hope so. yeah, you would, yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, so uh, when they, so there are no federal laws protecting chickens. There isn't anything. Right, chickens do not get protected, um, and so, but there are um, food safety thing uh, regulations they need to abide by, and they're supposed to also like there's kind of guidelines that they're looking at. So when they um, go to do these inspections what they may realize what they may document and it's very kind of unbiased it's just like a statement of fact is like oh we witnessed uh, a bird violently flapping as it entered the scolding tank Mm -hmm. now the scolding tank is uh, there to remove the feathers of the bird so if you to, to take give you a picture of what a slaughterhouse is like yeah, Take go it, ahead. Let's hear it. Let, let people know everything that happens. Yeah, I, I happen to know it, but I'm happy to hear it again. Okay. Um, so I, I, I've, I've been to slaughterhouses. I've, I've done some work in slaughterhouses mm-hmm. as a veterinarian when I was training. Um, so when you go into- Yeah, but a, not in the United States, I'll bet you. No, but uh, to be honest with you, industrial <laughs> farming uh, is very much the same all around the world. Uh, so, sure. So chickens. So you enter the chicken shed, uh, you enter the, um, sorry, the slaughterhouse, the birds are in crates. That's where they've come right. off the lorry these uh, crates are kind of emptied or dumped into what you imagine like a basin you know and the yep. birds are all on top of each other and then there's six or eight people standing there and they're having to grab the legs of these birds and put them into the metal uh, shackles to hang them upside down now right. these lines go at like 145 to 175 miles per, uh, and birds per hour birds per minute per minute, per sorry. minute oh my, my goodness per, um, <laughs> that yeah excuse me um so these, this line is moving incredibly, incre- You know, two or three birds per second we're talking about. Yeah. So they're having to put these birds on very quickly. They're hung upside down. It's painful for their legs. They, ha- they already have leg conditions because of the way they've been bred. We can talk about that later. Yes. Um, and as they're upside down, they don't have a diaphragm. So the insides crush their lungs as they're, as they're hung mm. upside down. The birds often get distressed. And then they go along to the water bath stunner. The water bath stunner is where their heads should enter the, uh, enter the water and an electric current in that bath would pass from the head to the legs because of the metal shackles. Um, That should stun them, but often it doesn't for reasons either the birds are too small, they get a pre-stun and shocks them because their wing enters before their head enters and then they miss the stun altogether. And so then when they get to have their throats cut, which is the next section, they're meant to come out unconscious um, as, as they're fully stunned, which they're often not, they then get their throats cut and they bleed out and that's how they die. Now, mm-hmm. there should be someone on the line that should spot any birds that miss that, but because so many birds often miss it, they often miss the birds that been missed, if you see what I mean. And so then- Well, there are very few inspectors. Let's Let's
0: roll it back for one second there and point out that there are very very few inspectors on those lines.
1: That's and right. Yeah. This... Nowadays
0: they want to have the inspectors at the end of the line, correct, to test for microlog, you know, correct. for uh, microscopic bacteria. Absolutely. They're not necessarily watching uh how the birds are handled at the beginning of the process. I just want to make people understand that that's one of the issues that has especially evolved over the last few years as the USDA has rolled back its funding for uh, USDA inspections.
2: Yeah, totally. And these aren't actually inspectors. This person is meant to be cutting the throat just... That's, that should be their job, but it's very hard. Yeah, um, And so then these birds enter the scolding tank alive. And we know that like half a million birds a year, at least, because these are the ones that, we, that we, the USDA have noted down, are, that is happening mm-hmm. to them. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like, as you say, the inspectors are looking for much m- other things um, at the end of the line rather than necessarily being at the front of the line where all the kind of things that happen to the birds are happening. Um, but nevertheless, they do see these birds Like violently flapping before they enter the scalding tank and therefore um, being alive at the point of of entering the boiling water.
0: And also people should understand the volume, the scale of this industry. We process over 9 billion with a B chickens in Mm -hmm. this country alone every single year. So, I mean, when we talk about line speeds being this, you know, eye popping one hundred and forty-five to one hundred and seventy-five birds per minute, um, that's why it's so fast. Is because that's the demand. Because we, of course, export a lot of poultry, and then we consume a huge amount of chicken here in the in the United States. Um, let's let's talk for a second about this new thing that was called, uh, which I had not I had not heard of this. It's called the what is uh, it's called the consolidated. Appropriations Act, which was recently signed into law by the Biden Mm -hmm. administration. So that, that's all about sort of more inspectors inspecting poultry plants. Is that right?
2: Yeah. So that legislation included uh, like $1.1 for food safety and inspection programs. Um, right. And so it was going to maintain this. I think there's like 8,700 frontline inspectia- inspectors for, mm-hmm. for meat, poultry, and eggs. But that's covering mm-hmm. 6,500 facilities across the country. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it sounds like a lot until you realize, oh. Hang right. On. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you know
0: that's the thing. Is like when you yeah. look at the scale, the nine billion birds, yeah. and, you, yeah. and you're talking about a few hundred inspectors. I mean, really, okay. And then you also mentioned in the in the stuff I read on your website that a lot of states have their own separate poultry inspectors that are independent of the few USDA inspectors. And the the caveat with that is that if it's only inspected by a state inspector, it cannot cross state lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but how? Are the standards the same between the states and the USDA uh, standards?
2: They must be at least equal to the USDA FSI standard Mm -hmm. And do do they ever exceed it? Um, are you aware c- of any uh, I think they can do. I, I wouldn't want to say that off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. All yeah.
0: right. Fair enough. And, and what kind of enforcement um, exists for these inspections? There isn't. Because I mean, there, there isn't, right?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, the short answer. answer is
2: there are none. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so chickens, have no oh chickens have no protections. Chickens have no protections at all. At all. Yeah, it's really it's it's
0: staggering. So mm-hmm. your report stated that according to this is a quote, according to the USDA, over 99% uh, of all poultry slaughtered for meat is under federal inspection. But I I'm struggling to square that uh, with the 148 mm. inspectors that you described elsewhere in the report. Um, and they're looking at over what how many plants did you say? Three hundred. Like, yeah. Three hundred plants. Mm. I mean, it's just it just beggars the imagination. I mean, it's just the whole thing is is so um uh, you know, so woefully inadequate mm-hmm. from from every point of view, and I mean, I know your your mission is animal welfare, but um, you know, it, it it's 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 also the the uh, conditions for workers are appalling. Mm-hmm. It's something I've covered a lot on this show. Um, I mean, it's the, the whole thing, and the food safety issues are rampant. Uh, hence the. <clears throat> the fact that salmonella was declared an adulterant by the fda mm. um a few years ago and now when an when an animal is tainted with salmonella it has to be removed from the supply chain but that's why we have so much salmonella uh in food poisoning in this country is you know because a lot of times that just isn't because there are so few inspectors that just is not uh necessarily caught uh when it should be despite their uh, rhetoric about the microbial swabs at the end of the line and so forth. So um, let's, let's talk for a second because we have a lot to get to here, Vicky. a lot. I can tell already I'm having too much fun with you. I don't know what to do. <laughs> So let's talk for a second about the connection between animal welfare and food safety mm-hmm. and the role of the USDA in uh, making that cor- correlation between animal
2: welfare and unadulterated or safe product. Yeah. So most companies, the vast, vast majority, like 98% of chickens are fast growing chickens. So they grow right. ridiculously fast um, so that they can be slaughtered at six weeks of age when typically they should be the size of a chick, but instead they're like the size of a full grown chicken and this right. has had a massive right. impact on these birds um if, if we put that just to give a perspective of size it's like growing from a being born as a baby and growing to the size of a tiger in like two months that's the oh rapid yeah exactly like when yeah. you then you're like right. oh my goodness so of course these birds suffer from a lot of things now and they suffer from painful leg conditions they suffer from ammonia burns on their skin which you can see sometimes yeah. if you look at the if you buy like thighs you might be able to see the burns on the skin um yes yeah, the so skin is reddish exactly and yeah, that's the ammonia yeah. burns from those yes, birds in those yep. sheds. Yep. Um, they also have white striping uh, disease. Now, white striping disease, mm-hmm. we did a we did a report on this. We looked at packs and we found like nearly 90, over 90%, 95% of these chickens had white striping. You can go, go to the supermarket, wow. look at the chicken breast and you'll see these white stripes across the chicken breast. That right. is a change in the conformation of the muscle um, because yep. these birds grow so quickly that their the muscle tissue can't basically keep up. And so it lays down fat cells instead. And so what that means is that this chicken has a higher fat content of over like 224% higher than it should be um, and a lower protein quality. So it has less than like 9% less um, protein than if you were to get a kind of higher welfare breed that's um, grown more slowly. And we also know these birds have changed how they react to Campylobacter, which is you know, food poisoning. So, yes. Campylobacter originally used to sit in the bird's guts. Now, it goes through the gut wall because of changes in 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 the in the metabolism of the bird. The, the Campylobacter can pass through the gut wall and goes into the blood vessels, and then sits in the blood vessels. So that when, if you don't cook your chicken properly, this Campylobacter is sitting there in those little blood vessels in the muscle, and so if, it, if it's raw and you haven't or you haven't cooked it thoroughly, um, you are much more at risk of getting Campylobacter. So, oh my God, yeah. Vicky,
0: that is news to me. Now, I wrote a book about the meat industry. Oh, and when I was <laughs> doing my research about foodborne disease, that that was seven years ago, and that was not yet known that Campylobacter was sitting in the, in That's the blood right. vessels. And permeating the flesh.
2: Yeah, totally. Uh, So it's not on top of the flesh. Like I said, it's in those little micro blood vessels. You can't see them. If you don't cook the chicken properly, you're at risk. You know, if the bird had Campylobacter, which a lot of them do. The other risk happens is when these birds come out of the, uh, you know, when they're um, being hung upside down, they defecate on themselves because they're so stressed and so distressed from the whole thing. And so that then um, covers the carcass um, in feces. um, And so Mm -hmm. in the US, Often there's the chlorine washing. Uh, that's a big thing. If, yes. you, if you're in Europe, that was a big thing about U.S. Chicken. Oh, yeah. People not like that. No, they didn't. They still don't they like still it. They still don't like it. And it's it's not legal in a, in the EU because of risks to human safety because they're not entirely sure what chlorinated chicken would actually do to humans. Um, yeah, but consumed. we don't care. here. <laughs> that's your words, not mine. That's your words, not oh, mine. Oh, my God.
0: Oh, I can say that
2: because <laughs> it's my show.
0: Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. It's also, I mean, there are drugs that we give that know, like ractopamine. Absolutely. Yes,
2: no, it's completely it's,
0: illegal. It's a, yeah. it's a beta agonist. Mm-hmm. It's illegal mm-hmm. in 162, if not 182 mm-hmm. countries around the world. But boy, oh boy, we love our ractopamine in the US of A. Yeah. We have no idea what that stuff does to our bodies. Yeah. But we don't care because those animals grow faster when mm-hmm. they're given ractopamine. Absolutely. So anyway, we're going to have to take a short break for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Vicki Bond from the Humane League and uh talking more about uh the plight of chickens in the United States. Stay right with us.
1: This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com.
0: Okay, so now let's talk about something good, which is the good commercial practices. What
2: are the good commercial practices and
0: what how do those, how do those get enforced? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so during uh, poultry handling and poultry slaughter, Inspectors can only document um, an establishment's failure to follow the GCP when they can demonstrate that there's been like a loss of process control or they see like an ongoing pattern or trend of birds dying other than by slaughter. So um, although, yeah, although the USDA refused to introduce regulations that would protect birds for inhumane treatment, they did introduce something called the Animal, uh, what uh, the Animal Welfare Institute described as like the GCP oversight program. So mm-hmm. that is um meant to oversee slaughterhouses compliance based on welfare guidelines that the National um chicken council put together now bear in mind the national chicken council is a That's lobbying like the, group for that is supporting the, support guarding the Yes, but yes yes exactly <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah 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 okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so it basically doesn't mean a huge amount <laughs> in oh short God. um but it does mean that they do you know document instances of non compliance supposedly um but the reality is it's neither like really are rigorously um documented they're not they're just just not doing it and it's not um particularly you know watched over so right and it just leaves so much space for like egregious animal cruelty like you know like you said the fox guarding the hen house it Mm -hmm. just it just doesn't do anything particularly it's pretty much ineffective it's just sort of looking like it's achieving advancing animal welfare when it's not really achieving anything
0: right right so the report that you guys um produced it cites uh, the practice what your your point in many of the you know in much of the um verbiage of this report made the point that the practices even something like the good commercial practices uh these are uh basically about food safety these are meant to protect food safety but have no bearing on animal welfare and i guess that's sort of a going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, like why there are no safeguards. There is no, there are no stand, you know, industry-wide federal standards for poultry, uh, you know, humane handling. and So how, how are we, how is that uh, sea change going to be effective? Do you think, I mean, like, how are you going to, I mean, there are things like your, you know, the better chicken commitment. And I understand there are all kinds of, pressure campaigns to be brought. But I mean, ultimately, don't we need to be
2: talking about legislation here? more than anything else. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so there's a couple of things. So within the Better Chicken Commitment, the criteria is to move away from water bath stunning, which is what I described earlier, and yeah. to controlled atmospheric stunning. And what that means is it takes out the live shackle slaughter element. So the bit where the birds are hung upside down by their legs and, you know, they yeah. risk the pre stun shocks and everything else. Um, and instead, the birds stay in the crates they're put in from the farm and then they go into um, the controlled atmospheric stunner where where a, a mixture of gases is used to, um, first make them unconscious and then kill them. And so, mm-hmm. uh, that is a much more humane way to slaughter these birds. And so within the Better Chicken yeah. Commitment, that's part of our criteria. But what, I mean, yeah, we would want to see that out of federal law. Like that's, that's the future. That's what we want to see is that water bath stunning sure. is no longer permitted and that we would be able right. to have this system that is much, much better for animal welfare.
0: And what would it, I mean, I can already hear the uh, industry screaming how Mm. much it will cost them Mm. uh, to do that. But it seems to me that you could automate a lot of that process uh, and thereby cut back on how many workers you would need. So that could conceivably balance out financially. I'm just like making this up, but I mean, it seems to me that um, yes, there's a lot of resistance to change, but that seems like a very sensible change to me. And you would avoid a lot of worker injuries, which happen a great deal especially at the beginning of that um, processing line.
2: Yeah, absolutely, so the, for, the, for the for the worker's perspective, when they're hanging those birds upside down, they are much more risk of getting diseases. So the workers mm. have a risk of getting infection from dust that's blown up from the feathers, there's mites yep. on the feathers, the feces can get in their eyes or their lungs, um, they can get scratched from the chickens as well. Sure. So from a worker point of view, they, that never happens. The birds are kept in the crates and that's that. Um, and then, from an animal protection po- point of view, as I said, like the, they would then go through, and they they should be calmer. Now, calmer birds do increase mm. meat quality. So, a stressed bird will make the meat drier. So, yeah. the more stressed an animal is at the point of slaughter, the drier the meat will be. So, again, it improves meat quality. And on top of that, if with the water bath stunner. Often what happens is there is a con- there is a um, conflict between meat quality and electrical stunning parameters. And what that means mm. is to do an effective stun where you know the vast majority of those birds will be stunned, you need to have like a, I think, oh, I don't want to get this wrong, but I think it's a high voltage. Um, and people often keep it lower because they don't want to impact the meat quality because if the bird's... Um, when they get stunned, uh, constr- uh, contract their muscles too quickly. You know, imagine sure. like you jump or something. Then you yeah, get yeah. When these- you get an electric exactly. shock, you jump. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. right. So you contract your muscles totally um, involuntary. and then um, that can cause blood splot- spots in the meat again, reducing meat quality. So if there's, ah. so they often don't use the right amount of stunning parameters, so they reduce that risk, but then you reduce the number of animals that are actually stunned effectively. That increases their stress, so you might not be able to see that the meat's been impacted, but the meat will be drier, um, and have less like water content and things. So, so there are all these things that can be improved by, um, by moving to a controlled atmospheric stunning, um, system. And I think the industry knows it. We know that Mcdonald's now are mo- McDonald's you know one of the biggest companies in the world sure. are moving to control atmospheric stunning because they know this it's not okay for people. It's just not okay for water bar stunning to exist in twenty twenty two It's just not right It's incredible I, that this is the system that we're using that was originally designed for speed of just killing. It had nothing to do with welfare. it was never designed for welfare. It was just like how do we kill right. as many birds as possible in the quickest amount of time. Right and this and this system
0: developed probably in the 40s early 50s as poultry industrial poultry Absolutely. production ramped up. So but let's let's talk about some of the other observations that have been recorded by inspectors who the detail in these FSIS reports which are now available to you people um in detailing animal abuse. I mean there's more than just the The, you know, the failure to stun, there's, as you point out, the scalding alive. Um, There were a few other things that jumped out at me. I was kind of like, whoa. Uh, Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. And then we're going to talk more about who has signed on to the Better Chicken commitment and so on.
2: Yeah. So I think there was like testimonies saying that they saw birds' heads that were engorged with blood, whose skin had been torn off <laughs> that they yeah they'd seen living birds being strewn across amongst uh, the dead carcasses they'd see decapitated heads on the on the kind of blood soaked floor of the, nice. of the slaughterhouse yeah there was plenty of this and also again seeing these birds entering the scalding tank seeing birds being kicked or thrown or stepped on while alive right Right. Well, you
0: know, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna say on behalf of all poultry workers that they work in impossible Mm -hmm. conditions. They themselves are routinely abused by their employers, uh, threatened with deportation if they happen to be illegally, uh, you know, undocumented workers, which many, many, many chicken workers are undocumented, and they're undocumented for a reason, which is that they can be removed easily and without recourse. Um, So. You know, the, the sort of abuse that occurs with the workers, you know, sort of kicking animals or, or otherwise mishandling them, um, I can only attribute to the policies and practices of the industry which employs them, um, because I don't think anybody comes out of the box wanting to beat up a chicken, you know what I mean?
2: <laughs> I, I this, this whole system is broken, and it's yeah. broken so it can provide people with very cheap meat without thinking right. about the human cost or the animal cost that goes into that, and That's the, right. the, it's propping up a very, very destructive system, like you say, that abuses workers, these workers have no rights. They, you know, right. and the- they, they have, they've been exposed, you know, during COVID, they were, had terrible time being exposed oh, to yeah. COVID. They they don't get to have toilet breaks when they're meant to. They, you know, there is, there is very little protections for these people. It is yeah. it, And it's not a surprise then when line speeders are fast as they do, and they have to work for so many hours that things like this happen, like it's inevitable in some ways. It is. Um, it is. And so what it's we need. baked in. We, yeah, exactly. It's, it's bound to not go well. <laughs> like, there's just no yeah, way that this absolutely. is going to work well. It's not a system that could work well. Um, but what it does do is make a lot of profit for companies like Tyson, um, and yeah. other companies who make huge amounts of these big fat cats sitting up there, kind of looking yeah. like, Oh, make sure we pick the line speeds up. Yeah. Let's go to 175 instead of 140. Right. Why are we doing so, so little? We can do more and never no thinking right. about the consequences that has for people and animals.
0: Right, and that and that goes right back to the farm and the producer and the contracts, absolutely, and the competition, the tourney tournaments between chicken producers, yep. the guys who are basically in hock up to their eyeballs in order to continually feed these companies with more birds. I mean, the abuses from the from literally egg to table, are just unbelievable. Um, but let's talk about a little bit more about the Better Chicken Commitment because. Um, there's uh the you part of the protocols for that are increased uh space around the stocking density is increased, in other words, how many birds per square foot? I think there's enrichment um tell us about some of the things that you're looking for in
2: the better chicken commitment, yes, yeah, so we have five key measures as you say we want them to have more space, so currently birds as they grow they they stock them so densely within a shed, and we're talking about tens of thousands of birds in a yep. shed. They stop them so densely that when they get to, you know, four or five weeks of age, they can't even um, fully lie down comfortably with their wings. You know, like how, you know how when you watch birds just sit and they kind of lay their wings a little bit and they just kind of nuzzle it, Sit down. If you watch a bird doing that, I watch birds doing yeah. this. Um, sure. they, they don't have that. They are compact. They're actually compact in these sheds. Yeah, they're jammed. Yeah, in. yeah, basically. exactly. And yeah. so, and um, because uh, we want to um, transition to a higher welfare breed, and that's as I mentioned, you know, the fast growth has such an impact on these birds. I like to mm-hmm. say that they're stuck in like a, a physiological cage of their own body because yeah. their body grows so fast. They it all the everything can't keep up the muscles growing, but the organs and everything else can't keep up. So you see them having heart failure. They have really painful leg conditions. We're talking about like a third of the birds struggle to be able to walk because it's so painful. Right. Up to a third of those birds, they they then have this white striping um, disease um, and other things that they the other conditions they get. They have something like hip um, hypnocrosis, which means because the pressure on the hip joint is such, it kills mm. off basically the head of the of the hip. So I don't know if anybody here has had a hip operation. They know how painful hip conditions can be, right? Sure. They, these birds, because they grow so quickly, have this um, hypnocrosis, um, and it's extremely painful for these birds. So we want to see them transition to higher welfare breeds, which would help reduce or eliminate some of these conditions. We want to see improved environmental um, enrichments and lighting. So a lot of these birds, um, the idea is to make them grow as quickly as possible. How do you do that? You feed them, you have the genetics that they have, right. and then you feed them all the time. And because they are growing so quickly, their body's like, eat, eat, eat. So they don't even get them to let them sleep. I mean this, like they literally get like an hour or maybe three hours of sleep a night. And as with all animals, they need much more like six, eight hours sleep. These are growing, mm. growing little chicks at this point as well. So so it's so important yeah. if you think about how much small animals sleep and these birds are deprived of it and because, and the, the producers argue the reason for this is because um, if you turn the lights off for too long, they're so hungry that they smother each other running for the food. how uh-huh. have we got to a point where we have <laughs> birds where they, they, they can't sleep anymore because they have to be eating all the time that, that to yeah. me is just we've just it's beyond. So they're <laughs> they're changing the genetics is what you're saying. They've I mean, changed the genetics. <clears throat> when I wrote, yeah.
0: When I wrote my book, they basically the, the dominant breed was called the Cornish cross. Yes, the Cop and that was, Yeah. Right. And that was produced by only two or three there are two or three major companies Cobb, Ventress, um Avigen I think. Avigen. Afri- uh, yes, yeah. right, Avigen. Uh and maybe one other that produce uh, I'd say 90% of the birds the genetics for the birds uh in the world and so these are they are now tinkering with the genes to dial back the save for example the breast size and
2: the rate of growth is that how this is going to work yeah so there are other breeds like you say there, there's two main breeds the ross and the cob um that have mm-hmm. been bred and they those particular genetic lines the 500 and the 308 um are used Like 90% of the world. Um, But there are some other breeds that still exist that can be used um, that the Hubbard uh, company have developed that um, are slower growing. They're not like slow growing, but they are slower growing. And this does really, just by slowing their growth by a couple of weeks or a few weeks does mm-hmm. reduce the impact that we see of these diseases and of this leg health conditions but it it does need to be combined with that le- with more space because also these birds can walk more and they want to be able to move around the shed so they do need that extra space as well to be able to do that so it's really well, that costs money
0: vicky mm-hmm. that's going to cost money <laughs> that's more weeks on feed that's more time under the with the lights on that's i mean <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i don't know it, how you're going to get anybody to do that the re- the <laughs> real Talk a little bit about how it's because you're European, you're British, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the Europeans, I just want to contrast this with some of the standards that are baseline in UK and in other parts of not all parts of Western Europe, but certainly. Let's just talk about the UK because you have pretty high animal welfare standards there.
2: We have we have animal welfare standards. They're not good enough. I don't know if you're surprised right. by my answer there, but they're not good enough. But we do have protections for chickens. We have the EU laws. Um, we're not part of the EU law currently, you now, obviously, but we do, uh, right. still carry over some of that regulation. And actually, it's a bit like here where you can go above and beyond the USDA. You can go above and beyond EU regulations. So the stocking density for the Europe is, is, is one number. And then in the UK, it's like, it's very slightly lower, um, but not low enough. So we have the better chicken commitment as well that we're pushing companies to go, um, to across europe and we have mm-hmm. companies like kfc um, in uh, northern europe committed to the better chicken commitment again to improve breeds produce stocking density the same stocking density we're asking for here because there is uh-huh. clear science that shows that at the stocking density we're asking for 30 kilograms per meter squared um is that these birds um They they then don't have the same leg conditions that we see. They are Mm -hmm. healthier. They don't have the same level of white striping as well when you change the breed. So, um, but we do have protections in Europe. So there is something, right? And that means we can hold governments accountable uh, in a way that we can't here in in the US. Actually, THL, the Humane League in the UK, is taking DEFRA to court right now. We just got permission to take them for a judicial review. And the reason that is happening is because um, in EU law, there is a regulation that says you should not breed farm animals um, that would have negative impact on their welfare based on their genotype or phenotype. Well, as we just discussed with broiler chickens, <laughs> the right. genotype and phenotype is really impacting the welfare of these birds. So yeah. how is it possible we have this EU regulation, but no one's upholding it? And so um, DEFRA is the Department of Environment, um, Farm and Rural... Affairs, there we go. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So basically the ministry that oversees farming and agriculture in the UK, um, they should be upholding these rules, but they're not. And so only 5% of cases that are put forward is for judicial review. So taking the government to court to see if they're upholding laws get put forward. But our case is so strong that we are going to the Supreme Court in the UK and um, holding DEFRA accountable for, for not adhering to this genotype and phenotype regulation. Fantastic. Yeah.
0: Um, and so let's, to talk about who has signed on to this, it's a lot of restaurants and hotels and
2: stuff like that, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So we've got, um, well over, uh, 300 companies committed companies that you will have heard of like Burger King, Nestle, um, Sodexo, one of the f- biggest food service companies, but some of these companies like Sodexo have committed to these commitments, um, but they haven't, been publishing how they're actually moving towards the deadline of twenty twenty six. So right now we're holding these companies accountable oh, and see. saying like, okay, you've taken all the good press for for getting this commitment. You know, showing that you care about animal welfare, telling your telling your, your um consumers uh, that you know we care about animal welfare, we're doing this. And yet when we speak to you, where's the progress? And some of these companies aren't making progress. Sedexo so is one of those. You know, they're massive oh, food really? service. Yeah, Compass, the massive. same. Absolutely massive food service companies that should be doing this. That have had, they've been working on this for years and still making no progress. And we have other companies, if we look to Europe, where that is happening right now, where, you know, we've got retailers in the UK that reduce their stocking density down to 30 kilometers per meter squared. The, you know, we have this happening in Europe. And we need to see it happening here in the US. And a lot of companies have taken the good uh, PR of the commitment and not done anything. Right. And, and that's that's not that's not gonna wash with us. That needs to change. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> how I mean, how can
0: you like I mean, I guess you can out those companies. We and, are. And yeah, absolutely. A, like, yeah, yeah we, exactly. we, you
2: know, you can join us in our campaigns. If you go to um, org, you can get involved and join our fast action network to um, write. We send alerts out of things that we want to highlight to companies. So we're currently right. campaigning for Sedexo to publish their progress on this and make sure they have a clear timeline for how they're going to achieve this by 2026. Um, so if you go to our website, you can get involved, sign up and then start doing these small digital actions. They only take like one or two minutes of your time. Literally they're very short, but they have a huge impact because it really makes sure these companies recognize they were watching them, that their consumers are watching them and they need to do this. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, how many producers have
0: actually signed
2: on to this, and who are they? So we have not been tackling the producers. Purdue. Yeah, we have we have some producers, but we don't have some of the big ones like Tyson or JBS and, um, or right. Pilgrim's Pride, for instance. Um, our, we've we've gone with the big companies that have purchasing power because these I company. See. That said. It's a very small market of producers um, like Tyson, for instance, in the US. So they also have a lot of power. But the public don't know the name Tyson very often. They don't see it very often. You know, Smithfield's Tyson, all these companies typically don't have a lot of a public persona versus, you know, say McDonald's or Sodexo or Burger King, for instance, have a much bigger uh, public persona. And therefore, we, you know, these companies are the ones serving the public. So they should make sure the food that they're serving to the public is of a standard that is, you know, reducing the risk of food safety safety issues, making sure birds aren't being cruelly treated in their supply chain, making sure workers Mm. are being treated fairly. You know, this is on these companies. They're making a fortune um, on our high streets. And so that's why we tackle these massive mega companies that are making millions and billions each year. um, Because... They are the ones that are in direct contact with the consumer. Right, right. Uh, I think we're just about out of time. We didn't get to
0: talk about how to generate legislation for this. But um, give people more. uh, Go back and tell us what your website is and, you know. Anything else you want to tell us about the Humane League to get people involved?
2: Yeah, so you go to www.thehumaneleague.org and then you can go to Get Involved and sign up there to our Fast Action Network. Then you'll get alerts on things, on campaigns that we're running right now. If you want to read about the Slaughter Report, you want to see... All the horrors that the USDA inspections found, you can go to slaughter, uh, stateofslaughter.com and you will find the full report there. Uh, we also have a live shackle slaughter website that you can visit um, and understand more about the process if you, if you want to understand more about that. Um, and you can sign up for um, our newsletter and you can follow us on social media. So look for the Humane League on social media and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter as well um, and you can follow us there. Thank you so much, Vicki
0: Bond, president of the Humane League. This has been a great conversation. I'd love to talk with you again, um, especially about stuff like how do we push legislation that uh, you know forces companies to do the right thing? I mean, that is, that is really the million dollar question here because uh, consumer demand can do only so much yeah. and, uh, and eventually you really have to get politicians involved. And get them out of, or get the companies out of the pockets of politicians so that they can actually legislate uh, stuff that. Reflects the desires of the population rather than the desires of, uh, you know Tyson, Purdue. Uh, although Purdue signed on to this, um, but Tyson, Smithfield, uh, JBS is the, of course the company that owns Pilgrim's Pride. That's mm-hmm. a big producer here. Sandersons is another very big producer mm-hmm. in this country. Um, and as you say, that some of those do not have much of a profile. But believe me, Tyson and Purdue get a lot of play. Uh, people know those brand names. They've done wonderful jobs of, of uh, educating the public about who they are. And now the public really needs to see who they are. So um, thank you so much for this time. I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. I look so forward long to for it. now. Yep. Bye. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.